You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing leaders in the church and the wider culture. In the coming weeks, you'll be hearing the best of these conversations, plus some brand new ones as well. It was leadership expert John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. Some have massive influence through their role as a leader of a church or business, a charity or a family. Others have influence in their neighbourhood, a network of friends or through leisure interests. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence. This show is brought to you by Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. You will know that communication is a key part of any leader's work, and especially speaking with larger groups of people. It may be the staff team, it may be a presentation to potential clients, or church leaders, it may be a regular preaching to the congregation. You can be a good leader without necessarily being an excellent communicator, but it's very difficult to be a good leader and a poor communicator, and certainly improving your speaking ability will better serve those you lead. So this week on The Leadership Show, I'm joined by someone whose job is to help people like you improve how they speak. She is Anna Randall, and her website is called, and the business is called, the speaker's coach. She was recently featured on GB News answering the question, what makes a good political speaker? And I'm delighted she's joining me today for tips on how to take your public speaking to a higher level. So welcome, Anna. Thank you. Nice to be here, Andy. So uh, your own journey into this, Anna. Um, I used to be an actress. I trained in musical theatre and then I worked in theatre and TV, presenting, voiceovers, that sort of thing. Um, so I learned a lot, obviously, in that about uh, how to tell a story, how to connect with an audience um, and how to move people through my performance. And I also obviously learned a lot about nerves and how to deal with things when they don't go according to plan. Um, and then when I had my children, my family, I decided that I would take some time out from what's actually quite a tough profession to bring a family up in. It's got a sort of reputation as being quite a flexible um, profession, but actually it's more that you need to be flexible. You need to be able to drop everything at a moment's notice and go for a casting or go off on tour for six months or work in Bristol for three weeks or whatever it is. And actually, I, I didn't want to do that. Some people managed that. I just felt I didn't want to do it. So I took quite a long time out. And then when my youngest child, Josh, started school, um, I thought, well, you know, I still don't particularly want to do that. So I looked at my skill set and what I felt I wanted to do. And it was really about trying to um, help people overcome the barriers that they have to become really confident communicators. That's what I sort of settled on in the end. Great. So you were um, training to be an actress. Uh, presumably that meant that there was a time in your childhood where you did some presentation which went well? Yeah, so I was always in the school play, you know, and I was always, um, I just really enjoyed getting up on stage. And I probably at the time couldn't pinpoint what I enjoyed about that. I think actors often have a reputation as being 
people who quite like being the centre of attention. But actually, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's much more about um, telling stories and connecting and shining a light, perhaps, on truths that otherwise might not have been told. You now work with with a variety of clients. What kind of background might they be, Anna? Absolutely anything. So I uh, work with clients who want to um, improve their general communication skills and confidence, or they might be working on a specific presentation or pitch to clients. Um, I work with people who want to be able to successfully give a speech at their daughter's wedding, um, whatever successful looks like for them. Maybe they don't want to cry too much or they want to build more emotion in. Um, I also work with a lot of people going for interviews um, who are feeling a huge amount of pressure because they want to secure a job. And also I work particularly at the moment because it's interview time at universities. I work with a lot of students who um who are under such a huge amount of pressure. It's so competitive to get placed in, on courses like medicine and dentistry. So it's it's about helping them understand what that process is really about. Splendid. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, if, if a client comes, what are the kind of questions that you're asking them and asking yourself in terms of how you can help them? Um, presumably, the, the end goal of their presentation will be one of the foremost ones. Yeah, so really it's about understanding what success looks like for them. It's no good me building this whole training session about what I want to do. It's understanding what they feel their challenges are. And then me obviously putting my professional insight into that and seeing what challenges I think they have. But really it's about understanding what they want, how they want to communicate. And very often that's there's a sort of dual approach to my work. So it's about delivery. Obviously, we all want to be able to confidently um, deliver our presentation or our speech or whatever it is. But it's also the content of that presentation or, or speech. So um, once you're much more confident in that, then you also become more confident in the delivery. So sometimes, uh, so I go through stages really of understanding and helping them always to understand what's the point? What is the point of my presentation? What do I want to happen as a result of people hearing me speak? Do I want them to do something? Do I want to move them to feel something? And once you establish that, that's what you're driving towards throughout the whole presentation. And uh, the, the length of time that they might be speaking will therefore vary from maybe five minutes or so up to a longer presentation of maybe an hour or maybe even people who come to you who are doing half day, whole day presentations. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously in there, there's um, sort of resilience and stamina that you need to build in, but also understanding how your audience is going to receive that. So if you're speaking to an audience for really anything longer than about 20 minutes, you need to be mixing it up so that they're not just listening to you for 20 minutes. If you think of TED Talks, which have been viewed over a billion times, they are 18 minutes long. And I think that the people who are analysing those know what they're doing by now. That's sort of the optimal time that, that people really can listen before they find it actually quite stressful to keep following what you're saying. So if you're having to speak for longer than that, then 
mix it up by putting um, a video in or change the speaker, you know, get somebody else up for a little while just to keep everybody fresh so that they can really stay focused on what you're doing. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly if you're giving a sort of half day workshop, then you want to make sure that you're really engaging and keeping people interested in what you're saying. Many of the people listening will be Christians in leadership of local churches. Therefore, for them, the the talk or the sermon uh, will be a regular part of their, of their life. I've done a little work with some Christians in leadership talking about preaching and what have you. And many of them are very resistant to <laughs> to change and to help. Um, and I'm just um, just wondering what what you might say to someone who who thinks they're okay, but you observe that maybe they're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think we're all naturally quite resistant to change because we're quite happy with the status quo and um, we don't like uncertainty. And it's also really hard to self-evaluate, isn't it? Um, but certainly if if I was working with somebody, because I do get people who come to me, not because they have sought help, but because perhaps their line manager has suggested that they might benefit from some training. And sometimes there are some quite difficult conversations to be had um, because they might think perhaps that they don't really need the training because they're quite happy with what they're doing. Um, but we can always improve, can't we? So, you know, I think it's worth asking other people for really honest feedback um, which is sometimes quite hard to get because the people in our lives that we're asking usually have sort of an interest in how that is received. So if we ask friends and family, then obviously they don't want us to feel hurt by what they're going to tell us. So perhaps they might not give a completely true um, response. And likewise, if it's professional, you might ask colleagues who have the opposite. Perhaps it's in their interest that you don't improve uh, because maybe they don't want you to uh, to get ahead of them. So um, that's why it's great to work with somebody outside of all of that who's who has no interest in you know giving you false feedback. Doubtless many, many leaders listening do these kind of talks so a few things maybe that you might want to let's cover on the kind of the the, the basics really and and the first would be maybe that the prep preparation and how you go about delivering whether you use a script whether you use mm -hmm. bullet point notes or whether or whether parts of it are what you call extempore in other words they think up the words as they go along so what would be your advice to people on on those kind on the on the basics mm, it's really personal Ultimately, in an ideal world, we would none of us need a script because what we really want is for our audience to think that we are with them in real time, thinking of them as we're speaking to them and trying to really meet their needs and, and thinking about what they need to hear. But realistically, that's not true for most of us because we can't we can't necessarily remember things for that long anyway. But especially when we're under pressure pressure of performance. Um, so in that case, it's working out what works for you. So I would always advise not having a fully written out script because the temptation is too great to just stand rigid behind the lectern, holding tight whilst you read the script. 
and the subconscious messaging that you are sending out to your audience there is, I haven't really thought of you. I wrote this script uh, you know, a week ago or perhaps even a few months ago, and I've not even delivered this for the first time today. Yeah, I've just dragged this out of the filing cabinet because it's my turn to speak. But on the other hand, you don't want to be left with no prompts at all, no safety net, because if, if suddenly you lose your train of thought, it's all quite painful for everybody. So I would recommend um, a few cards with bullet, point, uh, bullet points on there to act as prompts for you so that you can just glance at them if you need reminding. And screens and slides are really helpful in that regard as well. That comes with a big warning. <laughs> but in terms of prompting you to help you stay on track, that's really helpful as well. The other thing that I spend a lot of time with my clients on is creating a story. Because when you are telling your message through stories and illustrating through, through that sort of medium, um, we all kind of know how a story goes. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. There's a problem solution scenario. So then you tend to um, lose your train of thought less because you're telling a story and we all know how the story goes. But so it's a case of working out what works for you. But definitely standing, standing and reading a script would be my least favorite of the options. You, you mentioned as you were speaking then, uh, PowerPoint and some caveats you'd want to add to PowerPoints. What what would you say about PowerPoint and how you use it best? Because that would be a, a standard staple for many people today. Yeah. So when I'm working with people, I would say nine out of 10 times when we talk about how they begin to create their presentation, they always say, oh, well, I start with the deck. I start with the slide deck. And that is the exact opposite of what I would encourage you to do. Your slides are there to illustrate your point, not to make your point. In an ideal world, you'd be able to deliver your entire presentation without any slides at all, because you are your presentation, not the slides behind you on the screen. Um, so, so create your stories and then think, OK, how can I illustrate this? Now, as humans, we receive um, words and sort of verbal storytelling but we remember it better when it's accompanied by a visual. So if you're telling me a story and you put up an image that's related to that story, when I refer back to that story later in my mind, that's the image that will pop up and I will link the two and it will help me to remember that better. When we have slides that are full of words, um, First of all, I can't read those words and listen to you at the same time. The human brain can't do that. But then if you just, if you, so the options are you either have a pause whilst you let me read them, which is a bit clunky really in the middle of a presentation because we all read at different speeds and it's just a bit, it doesn't fit so well. Or you can read it to me, which doesn't really work that well either because it begs the question, what's the point of having it up there in the first place? And also, you know, most people are able to read that for themselves. So it creates a slightly strange tension in the room. So I would always just try and use as few words as possible, make it as visual as possible so that it's an image that's related to your presentation and helps tell the story rather than being the story. Excellent. Um, Anu, as you've been speaking to me, I've I've noticed that you've had no verbal crutches whatsoever. So there's no you knows and 
whatever. So, you know, well done to you. Uh, but some of us do, and I, I'm, I'm aware of having having them. Sometimes I have to edit them out after my recordings. What would you do if you, you know, for some people, there is a an ums and ahs and you knows kind of communication mm. without ha- wanting to be a- acting perfect as if you're doing a, a film. How would you help someone who knows that they struggle a little bit? Yeah, I think that what you've just said that is really important when you said without acting you know, perfect, we don't want to be perfect because perfect, nobody's perfect. <laughs> we want to be genuine and we want to be ourselves. And sometimes when I'm working with people, particularly for interview training, um, they've, they've rehearsed, they've practiced so much the answers to the questions that they know are going to come up. But I then have to, to make it less perfect and, and try and get some of those vocal crutches back in there to make it more genuine. We all do um and ah, and I think we all get a bit hung up on it, um, which makes it, makes it worse quite often. It goes back to confidence. It goes back to being really certain of your message and your story and practice, practice, practice. Because when you know your material inside out and back to front, that gives you less of that brain fog that is what's happening there. When you're umming and ahhing, you're searching for words. Um, I also think another reason it happens is because sometimes we're searching for sort of clever ways to say things. And simplicity is the key to any sort of communication. Don't look for sort of the most convoluted, clever way to say something when a few simple words will do, because then everybody can understand what you're saying. It's difficult when you're talking to a big group of people. You have to pitch it somewhere that everybody can get something from what you're saying. Um, So I would always say keep it simple and take the pressure off yourself, and then you're less likely to make those vocal mistakes that you don't want to make. Leaders can uh, often want to craft the exact wording from what you just said, but often will lose their personality somewhere along the line. And it's a case of matching the personality with the words and the enthusiasm and the pace. Again, that's a, this is a big question to ask, but how would you help someone who is aware that they sound a bit wooden and they're kind of not very real when they're coming across because they've got this maybe more maybe they're too scripted but when we're nervous we do lose a lot of the sort of color in our voice and the expression in our bodies um so i would be doing a lot of mindset work there there is so much that we can do to build our confidence um and a lot of it is physical so I do masses of work on breathing with people. And sometimes people are quite cynical about that. Uh, When they come to me, they think I've been breathing fairly successfully for 30 years. But actually, there's a way of breathing that can send messages to your own brain that you're calm and that the brain doesn't need to action the things that it's doing. So when you read a situation, your brain very, very cleverly and sort of puts in mechanisms to protect you. So if it sees that you're scared, then it makes you breathe faster because it detects that you're about to have to use your muscles to fight or flee. That sort of primal instinct that we have is so strong, but we can overrule it by controlling our breathing and sending messages to our own brains to calm down. There's so much work that we can do through our 
our body. Um, so if I were, so when I'm happy, I smile. But if I'm instructed to smile, research shows that I actually become happier. I release sort of happy hormones. And the same is true with confidence. When you see a confident person, they adopt a sort of particular type of body language. And you see it in the animal kingdom as well. They take up space, essentially. When you're feeling quite low in confidence, you tend to protect yourself and make yourself small. But you can trick your own brain into thinking that you're more confident by adopting a more confident body language. And um, it's, you know, people have heard the phrase probably fake it till you make it. I don't particularly like that because it's not faking. It's just sort of redirecting your brain to habitually adopt a different way of thinking. Um, so I would be doing lots of work with people on that. And that just feeds in then to the delivery. And it makes it a much more enjoyable experience. And then ultimately, people don't feel fearful of um, speaking to people, but they actually start to look forward to it. And also, it's about identifying what you're really passionate about in that presentation, because then the presentation isn't a big, scary speech in front of people. It's an opportunity to talk about something you're really excited about. Now, that's, that's splendid advice. Thank you, uh, Anna. Um, and in terms of how you look, in terms of what you're wearing and that kind of thing, again, any advice? Yeah, and I, again, I think that comes down to being authentic. You want to be comfortable and you want to be yourself. So there's no point. If you never, ever wear a suit, uh, then don't expect to feel comfortable putting a suit on for the first time to go and give a presentation. Um, there is a lot to be said for gaining trust with people if you want to persuade people of something so to sort of buy into your idea or to get excited about something you're excited about they need to be able to trust you and we trust the people that we believe share our values so we know that we're safe with them because they're not going to lead us anywhere that will be dangerous for us because they don't want to go there either um, so when we're meeting people and talking to people, it's worth showing them that in as many ways as you can. So that will be using the same sort of language that they use, the same sort of body language, and to an extent, perhaps dressing in a similar way. Having said that, it's all very well, I think, having a sort of cultural fit ethos where you want to work with similar like-minded people. But it's also really, really important to think about the cultural ad that you would be missing out on if you were all just sort of uniformed uh, versions of each other. So that diversity is really exciting. And our clothes tell people something about ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, I would be wary of dressing for the role, as it were. But I would certainly make sure you felt comfortable in what you were wearing in the setting that you're going into. Brilliant. Well, Anna, um we'll share with folk how they can get in touch with you if, if the kind of advice you're giving uh, it might be of value to them. Can you um, share a little bit about the kind of communicators you admire, those that you enjoy and do you think we might better learn from? Yeah, oh gosh, lots. And I do find myself um, listening and analysing everybody when they're speaking on the news or anything like that. Um, I think somebody who's obviously been in the news quite a bit recently is Jacinda Ardern, who um, has just stood down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. And I've always hugely admired her style because it's worked so well at um, 
at just communicating that empathy that she has for people. If you go back and watch some of the, the speeches that she's made, I think a lot of politicians could learn. And, and, you know, when you're talking about politicians, obviously there will be people who like them and don't like them, like their politics and don't like their politics. But she as a communicator is excellent at, um, at really showing her heart to people without any fear at all. She just seems to connect really well on that level. And that's how you connect with people and get people um, to understand your message and showing people. Ultimately, you want to show people the benefits of listening to you and, and sort of following your advice or buying into your ideas. And that's what she's really brilliant at. Right. Well, I guess you better get them on YouTube quick because she's uh, she's sta- standing down. You won't you won't get too much of it. But it's been fantastic to chat with you, Anna. Thank you so much for. Uh, I've learned Titans, uh, even thinking I knew a little bit about this. So thank you. And um, well, how can pleasure. people get in touch with you? Well, I have a website, uh, thespeakerscoach.co.uk, um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and always really happy to chat to people to see you know what their challenges are and if they think that I can help them. And presumably you do this partly online and partly in person? Yeah, yeah. So I have um, clients sort of all over the world now, which is one good thing for my business that came out of COVID. Um, Not great to have a public speaking business when the world shuts down and nobody goes out in public, but that's something that uh, I explored and has worked really well. And yes, now back to -to face-to-face individual and group training as well. Well, thank you so much for all you've shared uh, with me. Thank you. Pleasure. That was my conversation with Anna Randall. Uh, her website again is thespeakerscoach.co.uk. And Anna Randall is Anna, R-A-N-D-A-L-L. And so you might want to get in touch and uh, see what she could offer if you're wanting to improve your own public speaking or maybe you're new to this leadership and you know that presentations are going to be important for you and you are very nervous well i'm sure anna could uh, give you some help and support so this is andy peck your host thanking you for your company and looking forward to next time bye for now you've been listening to the profile in association with premier christianity magazine